turn in your Bibles to Psalm 74. We return to a theme that we've seen before of how do we handle and how do we deal with uh, mocking from the world? How do we deal with persecution of the church? Uh, specifically, how do we pray when we face persecution? How do we fa- pray, pray when we face mocking in a mocking world looking at us? And what's very interesting about Psalm 74 is that it looks to the promises of God to understand what we're going through at the current moment and to find hope for the future. And where our hope is, is rooted in the promises of God, just the same. In fact, what we see is that in Psalm 74, the psalmist is looking to that serpent-crushing seed of the woman for deliverance. And that is the same place we look, is to the one that crushed the head of the serpent, the one that rules over all things. And we see glimpses of, of that throughout this. We see glimpses of the exodus and creation and redemption. And so there's many parts of this that point us back to what God has promised in the past, realized in Christ for us, and how this brings us comfort today. So let us hear the word of God, Psalm 74. Oh God, why do you cast us off? Forever. Why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? Remember your congregation which you have purchased of old, which you have redeemed to be the tribe of your heritage. Remember Mount Zion where you have dwelt. Direct your steps to the perpetual ruins. The enemy has destroyed everything in the sanctuary. Your foes have roared in the midst of your meeting place. They set up their signs for signs. They were like those who swing axes in a forest of trees, and all its carved wood they broke down with hatchets and hammers. They set your sanctuary on fire. They profane the dwelling place of your name, bringing it down to the ground. They said to themselves, we will utterly subdue them. They burned all the meeting places of God in the land. We do not see our signs. There is no longer any prophet, and there is none among us who knows how long. How long, O God, is the foe to scoff? Is the enemy to revile your name forever? Why do you hold back your hand, your right hand? Take it from the fold of your garment and destroy them. Yet God, my king, is from of old, working salvation in the midst of the earth. You divided the sea by your might. You broke the heads of the sea monsters on the waters. You crushed the heads of Leviathan. You gave him as food for the creatures of the wilderness. You split open springs and brooks. You dried up ever-flowing streams. Yours is the day. Yours also the night. You have established the heavenly lights and the sun. You have fixed all the boundaries of the earth. You have made summer and winter. Remember this, O Lord, how the enemy scoffs and a foolish people 
reviles your name. Do not deliver the soul of your dove to the wild beast. Do not forget the life of your poor forever. Have regard for the covenant, for the dark places of the land are full of the habitations of violence. Let not the downtrodden turn back in shame. Let the poor and needy praise your name. Arise, O God, defend your cause. Remember how the foolish scoff at you all the day. Do not forget the clamor of your foes, the uproar of those who rise against you, which goes up continually. This is the word of the Lord. Every bit of it is God's word. The psalm divides up into three portions very simply. The first 11 verses are simply how long. The second portion from 12 to 17 is a call to remember God's work of redemption, remembering salvation, and then from 18 to all the way through, it's remember us, O Lord. It's remember us, O Lord. He begins by asking the question, why? And then you'll notice in verse 11, he asks the question, why again? Which kind of are bookends to that whole section there, verses 1 through 11, which are coming together as one big question of how long. He begins by asking, will you cast us off forever? In verse 10, again, that that statement of forever is brought back into the forefront. Why is he asking such questions of being cast off forever? What's taking place? Well, there's an attack on the temple. The language is very clear in verse 3. It speaks of the sanctuary in verse 4. The meeting place, verse 7. The sanctuary again. Again in verse 7, dwelling place. In verse, uh, later on, the meeting places are all a reference to the presence of God, and that has been disrupted. It's all a reference to the temple of God, the place of worship. Now, what exactly was taking place here is very difficult to determine. And there's a little bit of a uh, chronological difficulty in this. Asaph was writing during the time of David. He was a contemporary of David, as we saw last week. And the temple was not built in the time of David, it was built in the time of Solomon. So most believe that his work and ministry carried on into the years of Solomon in the temple. But then there's another issue, is the temple was not attacked or destroyed during the time of Solomon. There's one reference in 1 Kings before the great tearing down of the, of the temple, before the exile takes place, and in 1 Kings chapter 14, verse 25 and 26, it says, In the fifth year of King Rehoboam, Shashak, king of Egypt, came up against Jerusalem. He took away the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house. He took away everything. He also took away all the shields of gold that Solomon had made. And there's a reference to the removal of the signs that they, they used in the temple in Psalm 74. So perhaps it could be this. But then you have to wonder how old was Asaph to live during the time of Rehoboam. And so there's a little bit of a difficulty of trying to find or pinpoint an exact uh, situation that this came about in. 
But what we should note about this is that they desire God's presence. That they desire the place where God had promised to meet them, and that is no longer available to them. And the presence of God and the worship of God was of such great importance to them that they even asked the question, why do you cast us off forever? Meaning that they believed and saw this actually as God kicking them out of his presence. So what does that remind you of? The Garden of Eden. What was the temple to be a reinstitution of in many ways was Eden and how that was lost. And the temple was to be a place where they could meet God. There was a holy space. There was God's presence. And they recognized, just like Adam would have recognized, that this is due to sin. And so they asked the question, why do you cast us off forever? And so what is taking place here then is viewed in verse 1 as really the introductory statement to what will follow in this this series of questions of how long. They're viewing it from the psalmist's point of view as God's judgment on them. And the question, why, why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture, indicates that the psalmist is actually trying to figure this out and thinking back, why is this happening to us? So think about this, because this becomes a major theme for us to think about, is when judgment has taken place, when discipline has taken place, do we stop and ask the question, why, in God's good providence, am I going through this? And that question, why, indicates a soulful prayer, a soulful reflection upon what's taking place in the life of Israel. But he couches this in the form of not judgment against the wicked, but judgment against God's own people as a form of discipline. Because notice what he says, why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? They recognize, or the psalmist recognizes that he is of God, and that the people are of God, but that yet God's disciplining hand is upon them. He doesn't lose sight that God is still his God. So he asks the question, why? Calvin says this, When therefore God executes his vengeance upon us, it is our duty seriously to reflect on what we have deserved and to consider that although he is not subject to the emotions of anger, yet it is not owing to us who have previously offended him by our sins, that his anger is not kindled against us. It's owing to us that his anger is kindled against us. It's what Calvin says. And you notice how Calvin states the impassibility of God. God is not subject to passions like we are. That means it's his justice and the outflow of his justice. Spurgeon says this, Sin is usually at the bottom of all the hidings of the Lord's face. Why is the Lord hiding himself from me? 
Spurgeon says it's usually sin. He says, let us ask the Lord to reveal the special form of it unto us, that we may repent of it, overcome it, and henceforth forsake it. End quote. In other words, what Spurgeon is saying in asking this question, why is the Lord bringing discipline on me? May the Lord reveal it to me. What is the sin in my life that has brought this about? Does that mean that we always relegate whatever's happening in our lives to some sort of sin we've done? No, not necessarily. But as Spurgeon says, oftentimes there is sin at the root of it. And this is what we're called to question. Why is it that we go through valleys? Why is it that we go through highs in the Christian life? And when we're in the valley, when we're in that pit of despair in our Christian walk, and we've all been there, do we ever ask the question, Lord, why is this happening? Reveal it to my heart why you have brought me to this place. That's what the psalmist is teaching us. That's what the psalmist is struggling with himself, as that they no longer have access to the presence of God. It feels like he's Adam, kicked out of the garden and banished from God's presence. And why is that? Notice what he goes on to say. Remember your congregation, which you have purchased of old, which you have redeemed to be the tribe of your heritage. Remember Mount Zion, where you have dwelt. And this is to basically the psalmist saying, Lord, will you remember the Exodus? Remember when you rescued us? And when we were in the wilderness of the land, you told us, you wait until you get in the land, and I will show you the place where you shall worship me, and I will meet you there. Lord, that promise you gave us of your presence. Lord, that promise that you gave us, if we go to this place to worship you, you told us you will meet us there, but we're here And you're not here, Lord. That's what the psalmist is reflecting. Lord, remember, you told us you would point this place out. Would you remember that? You purchased us. You have redeemed us. We are set aside by you. You hear the desperation in his heart. And just to show it to the Lord, he says, direct your steps to the perpetual ruins. The enemy has destroyed everything in the sanctuary. Lord, take a look at the destruction yourself. And this is quite an ironic statement because I want you to notice here something in verse 3. Notice the enemy, notice destruction, and where is it taking place? In the sanctuary where holiness is supposed to reside, rather wickedness is there. Think of the garden set apart, holy space. And yet, what do we find popping up in the midst of the garden? The serpent. The serpent who brings about evil and deceives the woman. And then the man eats. Where you expect a set-apart place, you actually find the emergence of wickedness, and judgment comes as a result. Let that sink in 
direct your steps to the perpetual ruins. The enemy has destroyed everything in the sanctuary. The one place where the enemy doesn't belong, he was there. Verse 4, he goes on to describe the state. Your foes have roared in the midst of your meeting place. That is it, that they're, 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 they're laughing it up where they are. False worship has taken a place. Notice what it says. They set up their signs for your signs. So if it was, in fact, in 1 Kings chapter 14 in, of Egypt and Shashak, the the king of Egypt removing their signs and removing it. it. Here it's telling us that they set up their own imagery in the house of God. And so what they see is the imposition of worldly ideas. What they see is idolatry and paganism in the, own, the place where they are to meet the Lord. And now it's desecrated with worldliness. False worship has taken place. Where are you, O Lord? Your church has been abandoned. And there's famine in the land. And false worship abounds everywhere we look. He says this, They were like those who swing axes in a forest of trees and all its carved wood. They broke down with hatchets and hammers. This is a picture of creation. And it's depicting actually what the temple was to be. A recreation of Eden. And they come in and they destroy it. And why are they destroying it? Why is it that they're destroying that holy space that God set apart to meet his people? Look what they did to it. They set your sanctuary on fire. They profane the dwelling place of your name, bringing it down to the ground. Now, this could either, either be taken literally, which means that it comes in the exile when the temple was destroyed, or this is talking about something else when it says they profaned the name a dwelling place, and bringing it down to the ground. I, I happen to take the more poetic view of this. This is speaking of defilement, because you'll notice how it's, what it says is they, they profaned the dwelling place of your name. It's contaminated. It's defiled. That which was once clean, that which was once holy, that which was once the, the meeting place of God has now been defiled. Now, if you consider the language used here when the temple was still standing, but it's defiled, its now intended use is that of idolatry. And that's what's happened to the meeting place of God. He goes on to describe what's happened. They said to themselves, we will utterly subdue them. They burned all the meeting places of God in the land. What is the reference to the meeting places here? Well, it shows that they've utterly, utterly been destroyed. They've been broken. Most commentators view this all the meeting places of God in the land. If you think about it like this, is that oftentimes in churches you'll have your Sunday gathering 
you'll have a prayer service, and then in the mid middle of the week, sometime you have people gathering in homes, studying the word together, praying together, maybe singing together, fellowshipping together. It's probably the same thing. It's probably speaking of those that would set aside time to gather together, maybe in their, their families or close, close neighbors, and they would gather together to pray. And the picture is this, is even that, even the ability just to go and meet with uh, families around God's word and to sing the songs of God and to pray to God, they've taken that away from us. How long? Oh God, will you cast us off forever? So you see the desperation. Notice what he says. Verse 9. We do not see our signs. There is no longer any prophet, and there is none among us who knows how long. Now, this verse is why I happen to take the view that this was not in the exile. Because Jeremiah very clearly tells them before the exile how long it would be that they would be in exile. But I think we need to think of a Jeremiah-like prophet that says, this judgment is coming for this long upon you. And the psalmist is saying, we're, for, we're under your, your hand now upon us. Your disciplining hand is upon us. But there, there's no prophet to tell us how long this is going to last. How long? Lord, how are you, are you going to continue to do this to us? How long, O oh God, is the foe to scoff? Is the enemy to revile your name forever? How long is the enemy going to mock God? The concern is the name of the Lord. And as the people of God languish, the enemies gloat over the Lord's people and tarnish his name. Let me just ask you, just plain and simply, because we can't escape it. We are surrounded by the reviling and disdain for the name of God. Does reviling of the Lord stir up righteous anger? When you watch a show and the Lord's name is profaned, when you watch the news and you see perversion celebrated on the streets and God's name is profaned, does that stir up a righteous anger? And then the second question, is that, does that stir up a spirit of prayer to the Lord? Because I'm afraid that too often we get the anger part right, but we're not stirred to prayer of asking, Oh, oh Lord, how long is this going to happen? And if we have just one without the other, we're rather imbalanced. Does the disdain for worship bother us? I think that what we see here is an example of what we ought to do before the Lord is to humble ourselves and pray and cry out to Him, O oh Lord, how, how long? How long? 
And he asked the final question, why do you hold back your hand, your right hand? Take it from the fold of your garment and destroy them. The right hand is that hand of power, that hand of authority, by which the Lord executes judgment. And the psalmist is asking, after this time of experiencing this, Lord, will you rain down fire? Upon these enemies? And his concern is with the Lord. His concern is not so much himself. Yes, it begins with that, but he says, Look, Lord, they're profaning your name. It's your name they're attacking. So, what does the psalmist do from here in this desperate state that he so vividly plants for us? Is he looks back to the promises of God. And this is his source of comfort. This is our source of comfort as well, is remembering salvation. And as we get to verses 12 through 17, we see the primary themes are that of creation and redemption. Not only what God does in the garden, but what, or what God promises in the garden, but also what he executes in the exodus. You'll notice the word salvation or deliverance in verse 12. You speak of the Red Sea in verse 13, the water from the rock in verse 15, boundaries of the earth in summer and winter, God's sovereignty over that creation that he has brought about. So he introduces it in verse 12. He says, yet after all of that, God... My king is from old. That is to say that God is, is eternal. That is speaking of eternity. So yet my God, my or God, my king is from old, working salvation in the midst of the earth. So you notice that he says that God is eternal, that God is the king. It's capitalized, that is to say that God is sovereign and that God does things here in creation. And so you see two contrary items. That is that God is separate from his creation, above and beyond his creation, outside of his creation, but yet he governs it and cares for it and sustains it. You who is eternal and outside of time and space, you work salvation in the midst of the earth. I don't think our minds are capable of appreciating eternity in time. But that's what we see here. He goes on to say of what God has done. You divided the sea by your might. You broke the heads of the sea monsters on the waters. You crushed the heads of Leviathan. You gave him his food for the creatures of the wilderness. And I just want you to hang on for a second to those words. You broke the heads. You crushed the heads. What is this a picture of? What is this a picture of? The fact that you divided the sea by your might, we, we, we clearly recognize the splitting of the Red Sea. In fact, that by your might in the Song of Moses after the splitting or parting of the Red Sea, he uses that twice in Exodus chapter 15. But skip, Scripture actually reveals to us that the parting of the Red Sea was a picture 
of the seed of the woman crushing the head of the serpent. So when we read the Exodus and the supernatural event of God parting the Red Sea, Scripture also informs us that when we see that, that is a picture of the promised seed that will crush the head of the serpent. Let me just show you a couple of examples in that in Psalm 89. In verses 9 through 10, you rule the raging of the sea when its waves rise. You still them. You crushed Rahab, that's Egypt, like a carcass. Notice the connection of the sea and the crushing of the enemy of God. What did God promise to do? To crush the enemy. You'll see this elsewhere really clearly in Isaiah, in chapter 27, in verse 1. In that day, the Lord, with his hard and great and strong sword, will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, Leviathan, the twisting serpent, and he will slay the dragon that is in the sea. What is this a promise of? Is the seed of the woman that will crush the head of the serpent. In Job, Job references this. In Job chapter 26 and 12 and 13, by his power he stilled the sea, by his understanding he shattered Rahab, by his wind the heavens were made fair, his hand pierced the fleeing serpent. So whenever we see this idea of crushing of the Leviathan crushing of this of Rahab crushing this fleeing serpent. It's all pointing us back to the Garden of Eden. And when God brings this about in the history of Israel, those that were of faith would recognize, ah, this is God showing us what he promised in the garden, that he will crush the head of the serpent. This is what God is going to do for us. But yet, because the serpent continues to attack us, we know that's not the fulfillment of it. This is but a foreshadowing of it. And what would that do to the Israelite? They would say, God is keeping his promise. And he's showing us that he's keeping his promise to bring about the serpent-crushing Messiah. And that's exactly what the psalmist is looking back upon. And saying everything is horrible right now, but God has promised us that he will bring forth the seed of a woman. Where wickedness has entered into the holy place, the seed of the woman will come and crush the serpent's head and will deal a fatal blow. Can we see how this would give the psalmist hope as he recounts what God has done in the past? He remembers how the Lord's sovereign over all things. In verse 15, you split open springs and brooks, you dried up ever-flowing streams. 
You think of Moses receiving water from the rock. You know what's interesting is that when Adam was in the garden, the Lord said, you can eat anything you want. It's all here for you. Just don't eat of this tree. And you have this picture that Adam was freely able to eat, drink, and enjoy the fruit. Just fully relying upon the Lord to provide it. What do the Israelites in the wilderness get a glimpse of? We're thirsty. Oh, I'll split this rock and make water come out of it. We're hungry. I'll rain down manna. We want meat. Okay, here's birds. You'll eat so much of it, it will come out of your nostrils. Their shoes never wore out. And God preserved them through that whole entire period of time, giving them a glimpse of what would be realized in the seed of the woman that would crush ultimately the serpent's head. This is where the psalmist is looking. He says, yours is the day, yours also the night. You have established the heavenly lights and the sun. You have fixed all the boundaries of the earth. You have made summer and winter. This is just speaking that God is sovereign over all creation, but not only is he sovereign over all creation, but he's, his governance is over it. That is, his providence is realized in the maintenance of creation itself. And this is from when God created the earth. He has maintained it and set the seasons in their place. And so the psalmist is continually looking back upon the promises of God and how God has created all things and how God maintains all things. And as he's dealing with the persecution, he's saying, God is sovereign. God has made promises. And God will fulfill those promises. So how things are at this moment are not how they will be. You notice all the second person plural pronouns that are out there. You did this. You did this, Lord. You did these things. So what's he doing? In the midst of difficulty, he remembers salvation that was given by the Lord. When we're suffering, when we experience bad times, mocking, whatever it may be, we're pointed to remember our salvation that the Lord has given us. And then finally, the prayer turns to this, remember us, O Lord. Beginning in verse 18, remember this, O Lord, how the enemy scoffs, and a foolish people reviles your name. This idea of remembering, it's not that the Lord needs to remember anything. He knows all things. He's saying, bring this before your judicial court. Lord, you made us promises, so please remember them. This is a godless people. That's what it means to say foolish people. These godless people are reviling your name. And he goes on to say, Do not deliver the soul of your dove to the wild beast. Do not forget the life of your poor forever. In some of your translations it says turtle dove. Don't deliver the soul of your turtle dove to the wild beast. This is a prayer which is demonstrating the vulnerableness of God's people, as a turtle dove would be among 
Wild beast. What's a turtle dove? Well, a turtle dove, if you look it up, it's described as a dainty bird. No match for wild beasts. It's overpowered easily. Speaking of the vulnerability of God's people, as if even if they're encircled, and the things that look desperate. Let me ask you, why is this a good posture of prayer for the people of God? To say that we are weak and we're surrounded by a much more powerful enemy. Because it demonstrates the complete dependency upon the Lord that the psalmist has. Do you ever ever try to work through things in your own might, your own effort, and then you realize, I can't do it? Whatever it may be, I'm not talking about a physical thing, maybe it's a mental thing. I just can't get there. I can't do this. You know, in ministry, how often you realize, I can't actually accomplish anything. You have to recognize, even when, even when you try, you can't. And it brings you to a dependency upon the Lord where there's no self-exaltation. And perhaps, perhaps that's why the Lord has to tear down the temple. Perhaps that's why the Lord puts us through difficult times. is so that we're not trying to just forge ahead and push hard and lean in our own discipline, but rather, Lord, I can't do this. There's something else also that's tremendous about this. And it's revealed in this text. The enemy cannot touch the church unless the providential hand of God ordains it. The enemy cannot touch the church unless God has ordained it. And if God has ordained it, that means it's for the good of the church. That's a tough reality to deal with, but it's a truth that the Lord will break us to bring us to where he wants us. He goes on to say, Have regard for the covenant, for the dark places of the land are full of the habitations of violence. And when he says have regard for the covenant, which covenant is he referring to? I believe he's referring to the Davidic covenant. Just a little while later in Psalm 89, in verses 3 through 4, you see a direct Reference to that in verse 3, you have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David, my servant, I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. That's looking forward to that again, to the promised seed of the woman that will come through the line of David. And so he's looking back upon that Davidic covenant. It'll say in verse 21, Let not the downtrodden turn back in shame. Let the poor and, and needy praise your name. When he says this, not be torn down in shame, turn back in shame, excuse me, that is to say, let us not be embarrassed publicly. 
So what will happen if the oppression continues to happen is shame. Please don't allow this to happen. So verse 22, it turns into this plea. Arise, O God, defend your cause. Remember how the foolish scoff at you all the day. That arise, that it's, Lord, stand in defense of your people and go on the offense and destroy them. And again, that remember, when he says, remember how the foolish scoff at you all day. Lord, bring this before your face and judge it. You made promises to your people to show us a dwelling place. You made promises to your servant David to bring about the serpent-crushing Messiah. Arise and defend this covenant that you made. Do not forget the clamor of your foes, the uproar of those who rise against you, which goes up continually. It's one more time to ask, Lord, remember your promises. Remember your people. There will be mockers of the Lord. And the Lord's people will suffer. We see demonstrated here how our prayer should look when we have suffering. Does it take drastic measures for the people of God to gather and pray? I was at lunch with a pastor friend of mine who's been in ministry um, about 20 years longer than me. We're talking about the prayer meeting, how difficult it is to have attendance at the prayer meeting and how often it's hard for people to pray at the prayer meeting. I was encouraged because he said, you know, I I struggle with the same thing and his church is quite a bit larger church. And then he said to me, you know what Spurgeon talks about in um, his book on the prayer meeting, just a prayer meeting? Spurgeon talks about the struggle of that happening in his time. Charles Spurgeon had a difficult time with that as well. It's interesting, if you read Spurgeon's commentary on Psalm 74, he says, may we pray and gather to pray until the Antichrist is completely crushed. What does it take for us, though, to pray that the Lord would crush all of the enemies? Well, there's something we have to understand. What began in the garden of the the promise of the seed of the woman to crush the head of the serpent is realized in Christ. That's the first thing we have to recognize. In fact, Jesus tells us this in Luke in chapter 11, in verse 21. He says, when a strong man fully armed guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides the spoil. Well, who's the first strong man? Satan. And who's the stronger man that plunders him? The Lord Jesus Christ. 
You read in John chapter 12, where Jesus tells us he is the serpent-crushing Messiah. In John chapter 12 and verse 31, he says, Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. When does Jesus say that happens? Now. The Lord Jesus has crushed the head of the serpent. The Lord Jesus reigns over all things. But yet we're still awaiting the full culmination of it. We're waiting for his blessed return. We're waiting for him to return and bring about the new heavens and the new earth. And so while we're waiting, yes, Satan is crushed. Satan is defeated. But he's not powerless. He still roars about like a lion. He covers himself as an angel of light. What will it take for us to pray for the return of Christ? What will it take for us to say, things are desperate, God's people need to hit their knees and pray together? What will drive us to our knees? May our prayers increase as we see Christians today persecuted. We just highlight the 50 most persecuted countries in the nation every Wednesday. I just repeat a little blurb. We have no idea. Will we hit our knees for our brothers and sisters in places like North Korea, those in Nigeria? those that have to deal with the satanic forces of Islam? Will we pray for our brothers and sisters in San Francisco that as they walk to church have to walk by a gay parade? Will we pray for our brothers and sisters in Los Angeles that have to deal with picketers in front of their church as they're trying to go worship the Lord in peace? Will we pray for our brothers and sisters that are trying to just avoid violence in Chicago and in New York? You know, one of the things that is always interesting to me, and I praise the Lord for His providence of this, is that when I talk to pastors that are in in bigger places, in bigger towns and stuff, and they talk about what they faced in covid My friend just told me the other day that the first time they opened their doors, they had cameras there in front of their church building. I said, we never dealt with any of that. We had no fear of gathering. What will drive us to pray for our brothers and sisters? Will it take people coming out of the walnut orchards to disrupt our worship? Or will we think that No, actually, people dying and being persecuted in other parts of the country and people having difficulty gathering for worship in their churches, unaccosted by the surrounding world, is that enough to drive us to prayer? Because, see, we haven't hit Psalm 74, but there are many that have, and they desire our prayers. 
And so may the Lord pour out his spirit of grace and drive us to our knees to pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for our Messiah that has crushed the head of the serpent. We thank you that in him we are free and that he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. We thank you that in him, Father, we have forgiveness. We pray that by your grace we would fear we would fear you more than we would fear man. Father, we pray that by your grace we would be a compassionate, merciful, kind, and patient, and loving people. But in that kindness, we would not be a compromising people. Father, we pray that your spirit of grace would be poured out on us that would bring about a, a desire to gather and pray as your people. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you.